We've done a series about what it looks like to be a disciple from Galatians chapter 5 and Galatians uh, chapter 6. And um, coming to the end of that now, the final lesson that, that we have for us is a picture given to us about being transformed. And one of the things that Paul ends with in this section of Galatians, after giving all of these pictures about discipleship, is a picture of two false motivations for following Jesus and then the proper motivation for following him. Uh, There are a lot of people who will say that they follow Jesus, and Paul is even observing these uh, uh, that are even in their midst, and yet is going to talk about the wrong motivation that they have as they seem to be looking like they are righteous and pious, and yet All the motivations are wrong and then ends on a grand finale then of the the great picture of what it means to be transformed as a disciple of Christ. You'll notice, as was just read for us in verses 11 and 12 of Galatians chapter six, uh, you have Paul seeming to emphasize this this final uh, phrase, this final paragraph as he writes to these Galatians and says, look with what large letters I write. I'm taking the pen myself so that I can highlight and emphasize what I'm telling you. And he says there in verse 12 that there are some who are wanting to make a good showing in the flesh and they would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Isn't that interesting? First picture he gives is there are people that are telling you to do something. And the only reason they are saying these things is that they are trying to avoid trouble themselves. They're trying to avoid being persecuted. They're trying to avoid the difficulty. And so they were going around compelling these Gentile Christians and saying, you need to be circumcised. And Paul now puts his finger on it and says, now here's the reason why they do that. Because they're concerned about what everybody thinks about them and they don't want to be persecuted. They don't want to have shame. They don't want to have reproach. They don't want a negative impact. They don't want people coming up against them. And so they're unwilling to speak the truth. They're going to go ahead and make it easy on themselves to compel you then to be circumcised. And so you're seeing a motivation that exists is that there is this willingness to teach or not teach things out of a motive to avoid pain or suffering or shame. I know we would never be affected by such a motivation like they were then. Now, how interesting the the concern that he has There's things that they will teach or not teach because they're trying to avoid negative public pressure. They're trying to avoid a persecution. They don't want the repercussions of going along with what God actually said. And that is certainly something that is true today. I think it is just interesting that there are so many who will teach Christ, proclaim Christ, say they follow Christ. But there are a lot of things that they are not willing to say and do for fear of the repercussions of the outside world, of other churches, of other groups of people, maybe of their family, their neighborhood, their community, their friends. The big concern is avoidance. 
I don't want anybody to give me backlash. I don't want any problems. I don't want any suffering. It doesn't take long to think about how many religious groups will refrain from talking about and preaching on things that nobody likes to hear. You know, don't don't talk about adultery or sexual sins or divorce or we don't just tell us we all love Jesus. High fives. We all go home. We're all going to feel good. You know, yay us. We love Jesus. And Paul talks about there's a reason why people will teach on certain things and avoid talking about other things. And here's the reason. They're afraid. They don't want suffering. They don't want shame. They don't want the backlash. They don't want the persecution. They don't want that. In fact, you'll notice the wording that he gives there in verse 12, that they may not be persecuted. Notice he doesn't say for Christ, but for the cross of Christ. I'm always amazed by Paul always puts his finger on the problem is not Jesus. The problem is the cross. He said that over in Philippians chapter three in verse 18, where he says, I've told you before. And now I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies, not of Jesus, enemies of the cross of Christ. See, we're all good with Jesus. But we're not all good with the cross. That I'm not up for. I'm all good for yay Jesus. But then start talking about suffering and pain. Reproach. Difficulty. Hardship. Persecution. Death. Uh, Here he is talking about Christians and he says many. He says I say it with tears. Many. Live as enemies of the cross. Here in Galatians, there's a group of people who seem to be disciples and yet they're enemies of the cross. They will do whatever they can to avoid shame, avoid pain, avoid suffering. That I'll be all about Jesus unless it becomes hard. Unless it becomes a negative. Unless it means people are going to look badly upon me. That I'm going to have some kind of repercussions or consequences? Well, then I'm not going to proclaim it. Then I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to keep my discipleship quiet. I'm going to kind of keep it over here in the closet for a little bit. So I don't have any of that shame. I'm all for Jesus, but not about a cross. And I want you to see that Paul is talking to them about discipleship. And he says, you understand That there's going to be all kinds of people running around telling you what to do and teaching you what to do and teaching certain things and avoiding teaching certain things. And the whole motivation is avoidance. They don't want the pain of following Jesus. And we have to watch out for ourselves in that. Is that it's easy to be against carrying a cross, isn't it? It's really easy to follow Jesus as long as it's comfortable, as long as it's convenient, as long as it's easy, as long as there's not governmental pressure or community pressure or friend pressure or family pressure, as long as there's not some kind of external casting shame on us, it's all safe and okay. But as soon as family come against you or community comes against you, your circle of friends or your job or the government or whoever it is, will you still 
walk with Jesus or will it be like he's talking about avoidance? I'm all in until it gets hard. And so that's the first false motivation. I always think about that when you read about the people of God. And one of them that always just comes to my mind is Daniel. You realize what Daniel was asked to do. When you read about Daniel and Daniel 6, are you ever surprised by his decision? He was not asked to renounce God. He was not asked to bow down and worship an idol. He was not asked to forfeit his faith. He was not asked to renounce God and turn away from him. He was simply asked for 30 days not to pray to God. Just 30 days. 30 days don't pray to God. And Daniel said, no chance. No chance. Opens his window, prays toward Jerusalem. And you know, the enemies knew he would do that. (laughs) They knew he wasn't going to stop. They didn't say, you know, we didn't make a decree for a whole year because he'll have to pray. And he he goes, you know, all we need to do is just a month. (laughs) Always loved the line. He heard the decree, went back to his room, opened his window and prayed. You know, it wasn't even like he was trying to hold out for a few days. He just was like, oh, really? He wasn't an enemy of the cross, was he? He didn't look at pain and rejection and shame and persecution and suffering and back off and go, well, I'll just dial it back. He stepped into it. And he's telling them here, they were unwilling to do that. Disciples step into that. These have a false motivation of avoidance. The second picture of of a false disciple is false motivation is also found in verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Motivation one of a false disciple is to avoid suffering, pain, rejection at all costs. Second motivation of a false disciple is I want to look good. Isn't that a strange thing that verse 13 says? The reason they're telling you to do this is because they want to look good to everybody else. They're going to teach certain things, say certain things, do certain things so that everybody looks at them and goes, man, they are an A plus Christian. They are amazing. Look at what they're saying. Look at what they're teaching. Look at what they're doing. They want to boast in your flesh is the phrase that he gives. They want to look good in front of people. And in essence, that just means their discipleship is a show. It's all a display. It's all a look good in front of everybody else. Make sure everybody thinks that I look like a great Christian. They do it so they can boast in your flesh. Hey, look at what I told that guy to do. I'm looking really strong. And that's ultimately, of course, a hypocritical faith. If the only reason you do any of the various aspects for God is because of what people will think about you. Last point, negatively, or this point, positively, it's a false motivation. It can't be for that reason. You remember Jesus ran around dealing with that? The Pharisees and the scribes, one of the things he'd have to tell them in his woes is he would say to them, you do everything to be seen by other people. You're just making sure everybody sees what you're doing. It's all about the show. It's everybody being able to boast and look at you. You're great. Just amazing. What a Christian. 
And that's what they're doing here is that they're telling you to do the circumcision so that they can say, look at me, boasting in your flesh. You did something and that looks good on them. And that's ultimately what we care about. One of the things that Paul has been doing in these two chapters, in chapter five and chapter six, is just essentially telling us this kind of worldly thinking that we can so often bring to discipleship is false. That we can't be motivated by self-preservation or by what people think of us or trying to gain this approval and reputation, things like that. These are these kind of self-centered motivations that Paul is talking about and saying, that can't be why you follow. It can't be because it's a positive. It can't be because everybody does it. It can't be because, well, this is going to be good and this kind of uh visual point of view that everybody's going to think well of you. It has to be real. It has to be genuine. And that's where he ends up with. I want you to notice the description of the motivation that he gives in verse 14. Here's what it's all about. Far be it from me to boast except In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You thought about that line. He says, if I'm going to take pride in something, if I'm going to boast, it's going to be in the cross. Now, that doesn't sound as jarring to us today as that would have sounded in the first century. Allow me to remind you that a cross was a capital punishment execution device. That's like saying, I'm only going to glory in the electric chair. What crazy person says that? I will only boast in lethal injection. Nobody walks around saying that kind of stuff. And here he is walking around saying, if I'm going to boast in anything, it's not going to be about me. It's not going to be about other people. I'm going to boast in the thing that crucified, that killed this this capital punishment system. I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus. And I think it's so interesting that Paul is always embracing the idea of the cross. He's never running from it. He's going right up to him saying, that's what it's all about. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? And I think the rest of verse 14 informs us of what it means for us to boast in the cross of Christ. He he states two things here. He says in verse 14, by which this cross of our Lord Jesus, by which the world has been crucified to me. Have you thought about that idea? Here's the disciples' motivation. Here's what it means to follow Jesus. Here's what Paul says is boasting in the cross. Here's what it's supposed to look like. The world is crucified to me. What does that mean? I submit to you that the idea of what that means is ultimately the world is dead to you. It has no power over you. The world with its concerns, with its ideas, with its values, with its teachings, with its priorities are nothing to you. 
dead to you. Nothing, no power, no sway, no influence, no concern has nothing on you at all. The world, he says, is dead to him. It doesn't move you in the slightest. In short, he's saying this is what it means to be a citizen of heaven. This world doesn't push me. What pushes me is heaven, is that kingdom, but not this world. He is dead to it. I think that's such an important picture is just to be able to say the world offers me nothing. What a perspective. The world offers me nothing. I don't want it. I don't need it. It has no power over me. I don't care. It's not going to push me in a particular direction. I have no concern whatsoever. That's not my motivation. And I want you to think about how that contrasts what we just saw in verses 12 and 13. What is their motivation? The world, other people. What they're saying and doing. He goes, I don't care about that. The world is crucified to me. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Brussels sprouts are crucified to me. (laughs) Easily. Uh, They're dead to me. I don't want them. I don't care for them. They have no influence over me. I don't care what you do to them. I don't care how you jazz them up. I don't care how pretty you make them. I don't care how much sugar you dump on it. They're dead to me. You can put a mountain of them in front of me and I'm going to go and leave. See the idea? The world is dead to me. It doesn't have an influence. It doesn't have a pull. It doesn't have a sway. You can throw it at me all day long and I'm going to go, not for me. No value there. No power there. No influence there. It's not enticing. No interest. It's dead. Think about Paul saying that about the world. That's how how he walks as a disciple of Jesus. It doesn't pull him. That must be our motivation is that the desires of the world and the cares of the world, the priorities of the world, they just don't move us. They just we just go, oh, no, okay, I'm not part of this kingdom. I'm a part of a heavenly one. My desires and my concerns and my priorities are God's, not of the world. And then I want you to notice, then he reverses it. If you thought the front part was tough, the reversal is worse. I'm crucified to the world. So everything we just said flipped back the other direction. He says, the world's dead to me. But guess what? I'm dead to it too. Over and over again, Paul will talk that way about how the world has rejected him. Because of his discipleship. Because of his priority and goal being God. That has caused That kind of negative reaction where now people do not look at him and go, oh, yay, Paul. 
They look at him and they say, he's nuts. He's a fool. And they cast shame on him and they abuse him and they put him in prison and they try to kill him. You might remember how Paul worded this to the Corinthians and the kind of rejection he was experiencing. Where he says, even now we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. Would you want to be a Christian? If the only way people thought of you was that you were a trash can for being a follower of Jesus. You're just the scum of the earth. That's what Paul says he's experiencing. Because the world's dead to me. This is how they respond. I'm dead to them. They don't want anything to do with me either. I think it is such an important image that is being placed into our minds is that he is truly living in the world, but not of the world. He really means it. He might have to be on the globe and he might have to deal with the affairs of the world, but it's not moving him. It doesn't weigh on him. It's not his concern or priority. And he's willing to accept the rejection and the shame to whatever degree it is that he would even say, we're like the scum of the earth. We're like the refuse of all things as we try to serve God. The motivation can be summed up like this in verse 15 when he just simply says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And I think the idea of what the Apostle Paul's trying to get at is simply this. Is that the essence of discipleship is transformation. And he has spent a lot of time talking about this transformation. What this ultimately looks like. That this transformation, this discipleship becomes ultimately so radical in our lives. That when we go all the way back to Galatians 5 where we started this last month. That now we are so transformed from gratifying the desires of the flesh, doing whatever we want, being moved by the world, following the world's values, following its desires and its passions, letting it control us and conform us. This radical transformation is so immense that we go from that world and that sphere of life to now walking by the spirit And we follow in step with the Spirit to such a degree that the fruit of the Spirit is seen in us. We're a whole new creation. We're just so different now. We used to be moved by the world. Now we're moved by God. We used to do what we wanted to do. Now we do what God wants to do. We used to care about all the things about what people thought about us and all that they impressed upon us and how they taught us the values and the ways of life and the ways. And now we only are impressed by the things of God and what God tells us we're supposed to be doing. New creation, not modified creation, not kind of change creation, Not a creation that looks a lot like the former, but there's just a couple of changes. The old is past. It's gone. New creation. Completely different. This is what the Apostle Paul was trying to get at to the Romans. 
How are you not conformed by the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind? The world's crucified to me. and I'm crucified to the world. That's how it's not going to conform us. How we're able to transform not only ourselves, but those around us is this very mentality. <laughs> now, as God wants transformation, he wants new creation. He wants you to be changed. I'm going to take a step back for a minute here and just ask for personal internal honesty. I think all of us in this room would raise our hands and say, we all want transformation. We all want to be changed. We want that new creation. We want to be radically transformed into the image of his son. We want those very things. And I want you to just take this moment and think about what is the world really giving you? What is the world really offering you that keeps us from this transformation? What about it has its hooks in us so much that we're unwilling to be crucified to it and have it crucified to us. What about the world holds sway over us? Is it that temporary joy that we get that vanishes as soon as we experience it, leaving us empty and looking for more? You know, those sins just really do a great job of making us fulfilled and happy, right? Yeah, until it's over and now here you are again. Now what? It's temporary. It doesn't ever give what it promises. It promises so much in the moment and leaves you completely empty and void and guilty and full of shame when you're done. Why do we want that? Why do we allow that to keep hooking us? Is it all the chaos and the pain and the suffering and the loss and the hatred that goes on in the world that keeps us so hooked to it? You know, we want to have the, such great reputation about, you know, because they're really got it all figured out right now. That we allow their pressure and their say and their values and their system to weigh on our lives because they've really got it all figured out right now. And society's crumbling down on itself. Why would we want to have our hooks in on that? Or maybe is it the weariness of life? We enjoy the hamster wheel so much of how it, our world is just week in and week out. Go to work, go home, rinse and repeat over and over and over again. The book of Ecclesiastes, the total vanity of life. God made the world a hamster wheel that you're constantly spinning and spinning and spinning in. And apparently we love it. And we just, you know, keep putting me on the wheel. What is it about? I'm asking for personal reflection here. What is it about the world that we don't want to be crucified to it? What is it giving us? What is it doing for us? Every lens I can put on it is at the end of the day, it's more pain, more shame, more suffering, more emptiness, more loss. And it never gives what it says it's going to give. It's supposed to be the cross that frees us from all of that. If you're crucified to the world, then guess what? None of that stuff matters anymore. 
you can just be free. There's just a liberation from letting the hooks of the world get out of your life. That those things just will not push you, influence you, or prioritize your life anymore. That's what Jesus came to do is to set people free. And that's the transformation that is being called for us here. The cross frees us from the weariness of this life. It frees us from the worry of this life. It frees us from all of the values of this life. It frees us from all the, the uh, expectations that it places upon you about what it means to be a human, a man, a woman, a father. Just all the, it just, no, God's got the definition for you and it frees you from all that. And yet we submit ourselves to it. Here's the picture that the Apostle Paul is giving. The world's dead to me and I'm dead to the world. He said it earlier in the book this way. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what matters? That Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. That's the hook that's supposed to be in your life. Not all this world stuff. That's this emptiness and suffering and pain and loss and doesn't get you anywhere. Or he said it this way. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's dead. Don't want any part of it anymore. So let's pull all of this together in this way. Paul's big idea about discipleship. You and I are supposed to be a new creation. Just experiencing this radical transformation. And that ultimately boils down to being dead to the world and allowing the world to be dead to you. And I want you to think about this week as you go through your life choices and you deal with people on a day in and day out basis and you allow social media and news and whatever how your day floats. To ask yourself, is the world dead to you? And are you dead to the world? What is your priority? What's your motivation? What's your value system? What drives you? What matters? What is going to be the thing that has power over you to motivate you, to cause you to act? What is it? Is it God? Or is it the world with all that is entailed in it? With all of its passions and desires and sins and temptations, all that the world has to offer. And I want us to remember the promise that we started with a few weeks ago. A wonderful promise back in chapter 5 and verse 16 for you to carry through into this new year about discipleship. As Paul made a promise there as we started this is if you walk by the spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. That first lesson was called the winnable war. You don't have to allow the world to wreck your life 
and to continue to have those hooks in you and continue to pull on you and continue to influence you so that your life just continues down that road of temptation and loss and emptiness. You don't have to. Walk by the Spirit. And those things won't happen. And remember our our markers. You can look at your life and you can see where you're at. The works of the flesh are obvious. And so is the fruit of the Spirit. And you can look at your life by the outcomes and see where you're walking. Are you living your life in such a way that the fruit of the Spirit is seen, where we're seeing joy and patience and kindness and self-control, that those things are being exuded from us on a daily basis, which shows that we're walking down the right path? Or are we seeing the works of the flesh, which shows that we're not? It shows that the world is not dead to us anymore. We are not experiencing transformation, but rather we are conforming to the world. To honestly look at your life and look at those outcomes. Look at the fruit. Look at what's being born. Remember what we talked about the last time. To be able to have a harvest of eternal life. To think about every day you are given a set of choices. And to think of those choices like seeds that you're planting. And you're either choosing to use your time and your opportunities and your words and your actions. To either plant for eternal life. And enjoy the reaping that will come from that. Or to plant to corruption and reap the destruction that comes from that. Choice is ours. Every day, decisions, opportunities are put into our hands. And you are either sowing to the spirit or sowing to the flesh. And here is this this final picture. You're supposed to be the new creation. And as you sow to the spirit, you will be radically transformed. And you can let that world just let go of your life and you can be dead to it. And I want you to notice that Paul doesn't end this letter by saying, boy, and I'm really upset that I'm this new creation and I'm dead to the world. And they think that I'm the scum of the earth. I'm really bothered by that. No, in verse 16, he says, and as for all who walk by this rule. This is the rule of the disciple. Peace and mercy be on them and upon the Israel of God. This is the way to walk. This is the rule put before us. Radical transformation is in your hands. If you'll make those choices and decisions each day to plant seeds of righteousness and to follow him. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father... Lord, I do not know why it is that the world continues to impress upon us so often as it does. Lord, I do not know why we are often so beholden to the cares of the world and the passions of the world. Lord, I pray first that you would forgive us. Forgive us for how often we allow the world with its ways and its values and its pressures and its concerns to motivate us toward a way that is not righteous. Forgive us for caring more about what people think rather than what you think. Forgive us for the times that we have been unwilling to accept 
shame and rejection, suffering and reproach for your name. Forgive us for when we've tried to avoid confessing you for fear of consequences. Forgive us for when we have made much of ourselves. And Lord, forgive us for when we have been alive to the world and dead to you. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen our faith, strengthen our resolve. Lord, give us the courage to allow the world to be dead to us. Lord, help us to see clearly we need to do that. Help us to see clearly the emptiness of this world, the folly and foolishness of it. And Lord, give us the faith that we need and the strength that we need, the courage that we need to say that we are crucified to the world and the, cruci- and the world's crucified to us. Lord, give us that strength. Help us to be clear about the temptations before us and to choose you to walk by the Spirit and no longer gratify the desires of the flesh. Lord, thank you for your Son that makes it possible. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his mercy and his grace. And thank you for us being able to enjoy being a new creation with you, with all of our sinning and with all of our mess. Thank you for your transformation that you give to us. And we pray, Lord, that we would live as lights, shine in the darkness, and be the disciples you want to be until we enjoy the harvest of eternity with you. We pray this through your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing an invitation song now. We invite you to come to Jesus. If there's anything we can do for you this morning to help you in your walk with him, we want to do that. That's why we're here to encourage this new transformation in your life, to leave the world behind, to follow him with all of your heart. If you have not been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, we want you to do that. Just let any of us know that you're interested in that. We can do that this very day. If you need our prayers or need our help, just let us know. Anything we can do, won't you come while we stand and while we sing.